This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is the BZE Community Action Show. Thanks very much to Marissa for the Doing Time Show. Breaking news. Turnbull government accused of blocking the US-Japan plan to reduce coal. You can take action this week, opposing Australia blocking a new deal, which would mean the rich countries of the OECD will give no more money to new coal-fired power plants. The details will be attached to the podcast of the show, but do it this week. Take action. Vivian is still hoping for a Prince of Penzance moment with Turnbull, but as one of the people she talks to this week said, same shit, different shovel, she takes us to a vigil for the Filipino victims of Typhoon Haiyan outside Whitehaven Coal and to meet the people of Bulga fighting off Rio Tinto. But first, we're going to an international symposium called Paris and Beyond. Fergus Green tells us how Australia can be an energy superpower if we don't miss the window of opportunity. And Carolyn Lambert talks about the European Union delegation to Australia. She is their first councillor on climate and environment. But first up in the show tonight, here's Fergus Green. Fergus Green is an expert on cooperation. He co-authored a Beyond Zero report a few years ago called Laggards to Leaders with avant-garde ideas like getting the handful of coal exporting nations together to manage the necessary steps away from a fossil fueled economy. That's what I took from it. He's now at the London School of Economics at the Grantham Institute. He specialises in climate change policy and the role governments can play in fostering structural economic change. So welcome Fergus. Thanks very much, Vivian. It's great to be back with you. Yeah. To first fill us in what's been happening uh, in the global scene and with yourself in your studies uh, about climate policy. Sure. So we'll, I've focused on uh, a few key areas over the last uh, two years that I've been working in London. Um, one of those areas has been on international climate change cooperation, particularly in the lead up to the Paris conference, which is now only five or six weeks away. Um, and there... You know, we've sort of seen the shift away, I think, from this 
kind of utopian attempt to get a, a broad and deep comprehensive treaty mm-hmm. towards uh, a more manageable task, which is sort of a broad and shallow treaty, mm-hmm. which I think puts the spotlight back on countries to find their own decarbonisation pathways. So I think that that change in the international system makes um, BZE's work even more relevant and important. Um, and I've also focused a lot on China and China's changing economy and what that means for, um, particularly for China's emissions, but it also has uh, huge implications for Australia which I'm going to be talking a bit about while I'm here. And, uh, and the third area that I've, that I've worked on, particularly in my work with Professor Stern, has focused on the economics of climate change action. Mm-hmm. And there the really big shift has kind of been from, from focusing on climate change purely as a matter of costs for countries, which need to be avoided and minimised, to recognising, first of all, the way that costs can fall rapidly over time with the right structures in place, but also on the associated benefits of taking, taking climate action quite aside from avoiding climate change itself. And so we've done a lot of really interesting work on the broader economic benefits and costs of, of countries taking action on climate change. And I think they've all been areas that have really changed enormously in the last few years. Well, it's hard to see a historical shift when you're right in the middle mm. of it. And uh, listeners might think, well, actually, we're on a path to becoming the Saudi Arabia of gas in Australia. We're going to still, you know, exploit coal. Um, we're still subsidising it and I think when you hear you think there's no change at all and I wanted to know what would motivate or what will motivate the transition for exporting countries like us towards renewable energy because I know the Beyond Zero Emission says we should be exporting renewable energy mm. not coal so what would motivate that? Well, I think the biggest thing that will that will 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 drag us into change, whether we prepare for it or not, is the the, the changing economics of um, fossil fuel energy versus renewable energy. Um, the economics of of coal are already bad when you factor in the full costs, which mm. tend not to get factored in through 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 taxation and so on. Um, but uh, but what will increasingly happen is even if we don't price in those those full costs, so the local air pollution and the the, the, the greenhouse gas pollution and so on, um, is that just the the economics of renewable energy, particularly solar and wind, are, are getting better and better every year, um, and and many countries are opting to um, to push forward with investing in renewable energy ahead of investing in fossil fuels. Um, the biggest change in that regard is from our largest trading partner, China. Um, which, uh, you know, over the period 2000 to 2013, w- went on a, a huge coal uh, uh, kind of binge, for want of a better word, mm. um, as part of powering its sort of investment-driven economy. And from 2008 became a net coal importer, and Australia obviously supplied a lot of that coal to China. Well, China's now turned a, a corner, and it's actually, its coal use is falling for, for a range of reasons we, we can go into, if you want. But, um, but basically, the, the sort of key takeaway is that... Um, um, it's going to be importing a lot less coal and using a lot less coal, um, and it's going to be using a lot more renewable energy. So I think the economics of, uh, of this around the world will change the situation for Australia, and we can kind of either uh, uh, adapt and capitalise on the opportunities, or we can sort of be left left holding the coal mines, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in your previous work, you took heart from a treaty um to preserve Antarctica, and I believe we starred there. Um, could you remind us how Australia did take a lead at that time, and then tell us what sort of treaty you want to see now emerging from the Paris Climate Conference? Mm. Yeah, so so 
the the Antarctic example is a really interesting one, and it was during the period when Bob Hawke was Prime Minister of Australia, and what was uh, what the issue then was this question of whether and to what extent governments wanted to allow mining in the pristine environment of Antarctica, and uh, an original proposal was tabled to allow sort of uh, to allow mining basically with some with some restrictions, and um, and Bob Hawke actually against the wishes of most of his cabinet uh, decided that this, this, this would, wouldn't do and uh, along with the French president kind of mobilised a coalition among the international community to actually um, impose some of the, the highest environmental restrictions ever in any international treaty including a, a ban on Antarctic mining. And it's an interesting case study for a few reasons. One, because it shows that actually we do have a history of, of banning certain things that we think are just totally unacceptable. And I think where it provides the most useful precedent is perhaps not so much for the kind of international agreement we're likely to see in Paris, which is likely to be sort of very broad but quite thin, but for potentially for other kinds of cooperation that small groups of countries could do who are willing to go uh, for more kind of, if you like, narrow and deep Cooperation, and one example that could be potentially important here is um, is around coal production and coal exports. We've seen that the president of Kiribati and the Pacific Islands Forum recently call for a moratorium on new coal-fired, uh, sorry, on new coal coal mines and mine extensions. This is more similar in structure to the kind of Antarctic ban, and that's the kind of thing that I think we should, you know, we should be, um, you know, Australia should be should be engaging in, frankly. Um, and a lot of other countries are going to be increasingly call, calling for us if they want to avoid two, two degrees or more of, of global warming. So, so we should get in front of that. Yeah. Um, look, um, we're speaking to Fergus Green, and uh, Fergus is from the London School of Economics. Uh, Fergus, what could Australia offer at Paris, even if it did stick with the low targets? Now, we've just had a change of Prime Minister. He's much more positive about climate change, much more knowledgeable about it. And I wondered if there couldn't be quite a few other policies he could offer mm. that would impress the world community that we are intending to um, help our neighbours. As you said, you know, the Suva Declaration and help our neighbours with clean energy, developing renew renewable energy um, as an export maybe, but what, what could he offer or our team offer mm. at Paris? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think if you sort of take for a given the sort of political feasibility constraints within the, uh, the Liberal National Coalition, it seems that Turnbull has been determined to kind of uh, portray business as usual as continuing and so he's not going to be in introducing any major new policies. So it doesn't leave a lot of room to manoeuvre but I think you know one area that he's clearly highlighted is of potential uh, sorry is of great interest to him personally and I, know, and I know this for a fact to be true is around technological in innovation generally and particularly around climate change and renewable energy and, and electrified transport and so on. I know that he gets this issue better than most and, um, uh, and is very engaged with it and it's an area where we're probably not likely to see much in the formal Paris Treaty but where we could see um, uh, you know I mentioned before about small groups of smaller groups of countries cooperating collaborating on on various things well one area that a lot of governments including the UK government are promoting quite heavily is enhanced uh, technology cooperation um, which can come in various forms and I won't go to the ins and outs but basically I think there could be potential for engaging um, 
a Malcolm Turnbull, also engaging a sort of a David Cameron and some of these sort of centre-right figures around um, an, an, a technological innovation agenda. Now that, of course, would still have potential budgetary implications for Australia, but it's the sort of thing that I feel like a, a Malcolm Turnbull could potentially have some room to, to manoeuvre in, in Paris. Fergus, tell us about the renewable energy super out superpower idea. At the moment I'd suppose we're one of the superpowers for coal exports, mm. Saudi Arabia exports oil, those are superpowers for energy but what's this vision of renewable energy superpowers and who are they likely to be? Yeah well I think that the um, the, the, the team at BZE has done a fantastic report I, I found it really interesting um, I think it highlights a few really important dynamics and it, it, I think it nicely divides us up into the kind of transitional phase and to the the kind of the phase where we have relatively settled you know most countries have relatively settled renewable energy based energy systems and there are different dynamics in in both of them and if you if you like we can sort of start with the the end game which is in a, in a renewable based energy system and there i think is a very strong case which the report makes that australia um if it if it plays its cards well um would have huge advantages um, internationally because in a world where you know the majority of countries are using majority renewable energy then the cost of renewable energy becomes uh, the key determinant of whether you have an advantage in, 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 uh, in cheap electricity which of course is important for lots of manufacturing industries and so for the economic competitiveness so so it sort of turns on this head on its head this idea that well re- you know renewables are more costly and so we'd be losing our electricity yeah. advantage because in the end game we would actually have a greater advantage because we have such good renewable energy resources. So I think the analysis of that phase is is really interesting and important and, and says that, you know, we could be um, a low-cost energy provider in a world of renewable energy. And then, there, yeah, then you have well, this... Just, could yeah. you just stop there? Why would it be especially low-cost from Australia? You mean exporting energy, like through a pipeline? Well, no, no, well, that's... I mean, that's sort of... Uh, not so much the pipeline, but... but um, the idea being that for energy-intensive producers of, of you know, goods like you know, steel, aluminium, yeah. things like that, um, industries where the cost of energy is one of the largest costs of production, um, they will, other things being equal, uh, tend to want to locate themselves in um, countries which have relatively low-cost energy. Now, there are lots of complicating factors. It depends on a range of other things, but Australia you know, has a lot of the other good things that you would want, you know, um, and that's why we have a lot of those industries already. Um, now, uh, now, in addition to that, and the report makes this clear, there will be additional um, industrial opportunities associated with the storage and um, potential export of energy commodities. And here the, the, uh, we talk about things like biofuels, um, about hydrogen, and, uh, and to some extent ex- exporting electricity directly through undersea cables mm-hmm. to, to Southeast Asia. I mean, we already do it from the mainland of uh, Victoria to Tasmania as yeah. part of the national energy market. Um, so, but it would require longer undersea undersea cables, and the economics of that may become favourable to, yeah. to tap Australia's um, renewable resources. So, they're sort of they're the kind of two components of that mm-hmm. of that future. Um, but it also the report also talks about the the tra- transitional phase, and it makes the really important point that when you're building renewable energy generation sources. Um, 
all of the investment ca- comes in the, the the capital cost of building the new yeah. building the new infrastructure, and and there's very very low ongoing running costs. You obviously don't have yeah. fuel costs, yeah. so that makes the, the the profile, the kind of financial profile and economic profile of those technologies very different from fossil fuels, where you're constantly supplying the fuel. And over the next 15, 20 years, when um, we're going to need to see, and I think we'll increasingly see, um, major investments globally in renewable energy, that means there's going to be a relatively short window um, where most of the investment will come, and then they'll all be running and there'll be no additional fuel costs. So the point is that Australia needs to kind of get in on the action in that transitional phase to supply equipment, materials, services, expertise, intellectual property for the um, development of renewable energy in other countries and that's kind of the, the third piece of piece of the puzzle still fighting for what is ours climate action climate justice no man know the time nor the hour in december the governments of 190 countries arrive in paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change Tricia joins the discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis, starting Monday, November 16 till 28, and continuing into December. From 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m., weekdays and on Saturdays. The warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions, climate change will be irreversible. Stay tuned. As Tricia Breakfast Programs join the global conversation. We're speaking to Fergus Green, who's from the London School of Economics, Grantham Institute, and he's speaking tonight at the Beyond Zero Emissions Energy Superpower launch. Now, Fergus, they always say on radio, tell a story. Could you tell that, that you just told us, as a narrative? What's the narrative? You're pitching it to the business world who might invest here. Tell us the story whereby it will be good for them to use that window of opportunity to invest here. Could you just make a little summary of what you said? Sure. Well, I guess I would go back one step further and say I think the the first step, the the story is really a story for governments initially because, um, you know, whilst there already is business investment in the renewable energy sector and so forth, we've also seen that investment take a big hit over the last year because of governments fiddling with policies and, Mm. and getting the policy settings wrong. So it's really important that governments get the policy settings right and that they engage where it makes sense for government to invest directly in things like early stage research and development um, and also um, to some extent in the deployment, uh, particularly the early stage deployment of new technologies mm-hmm. when their costs tend to be high because they can, they can come down over through deployment. Um, so there's, there's a range of things that governments need to do in terms of direct investment and, and subsidising um, new technologies, clean technologies, but also in kind of getting the, the, the tax system right and mm. carbon pricing and a range of other kind of policy measures in place. Um, and the story there is really one of saying, uh, positioning Australia um, to take advantage of the economic benefits that will arise um, in the transition to and in the actuality of a kind of renewable energy-based global economy. Um, 
and I think um, you know I think the BZE report paints the story better better than I could do about some of the opportunities to Australia. Um, uh, you know I focused a lot on uh, uh, the international cooperation, as I say, and about some of the big changes in China. Yeah. I mean, you can tell a story there about us having been kind of supplying um, the raw materials, the, the the coal and the iron ore yeah. for China's previous growth model, um, 2000 to 2013, roughly. But China's new new growth um, model, the, the old one's unsustainable and the new one is based um, much more around kind of building its um, uh, high-tech domestic industries, its services sector um, uh, and and about energy efficiency and moving rapidly away from coal for reasons of air pollution and technological modernisation. And so the story there is do we want to kind of be supplying an economic model that's in decline or do we want to position ourselves to supply the new, um, uh, you know, the new technologies and services that China needs to clean up its economy and to grow cleanly, as it's as it's you know made patently clear at the highest levels of government it, 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 its plans to do. So it sounds like a lot more industrialisation of Australia. Mm. Is that what we're talking about? In which case, how are we going to protect our health and our environment? Uh, be a lot more jobs. Sure, sure, what you mean about uh, um, protecting well, the health and environment? Well, if if you industrialise more, you you know you can damage the environment, can't oh, you? Oh, I see yeah. the kind of local level. Mm. I mean. Well, I mean, Australia is already industrialised in a sense, but I mean, we do need the, the point of um, transition to to a kind of renewables-based energy system is that um, you kind of need to de-industrialise the fossil fuel-based economy and and industrialise the renewables-based mm. economy. Um, so, um, but I mean, you know, I mean, we can expect that that the the energy sources that we're transitioning to, particularly if we also invest in, in energy efficiency, will be much less harmful for the local mm. local environment. I mean, one of the um, another huge problem that we face from coal. I mean, it's a bit much bigger in developing economies like China and India than than the, than the problem in Australia. But um, but you know, is air pollution from from burning coal. Um, this is a huge global killer every year. Um, and uh, and so so you can see the kind of local environmental impacts from these problems, and we and you've seen you know the uh, you know coal coal mine on fire in, in in Victoria, and so you can see the kind of toxic impacts that that, that fossil fuel fossil fuels have. So I think that um, you know the, the the sort of energy system we're moving towards will generally have a lower in, environmental footprint than the one we currently have. Well, how will the energy ref, um revolution affect nations in a political sense I, I'm thinking of the oil wars that mm. we've had and that we're still having and the water wars of the future that people say we will have how do you think, well this will make a, a less tense future politically or um, more tensions Yeah I think um, uh, I think that Clearly, and the report makes this point. You know, throughout the 20th century and and, and earlier, um, a lot of the major global and regional conflicts we've seen uh, have had a strong resource dimension, particularly a strong oil mm. dimension, that has to do with this enormous imbalance and kind of inequality we see in the in in endowments of fossil fuel resources, particularly of oil resources, um, which are concentrated in a few countries, and in a renewable energy based sort of global energy system, or or lots of sort of national and regional energy systems, those advantages narrow 
uh, narrow quite substantially. There's still a differential. This is kind of the, the, where Australia can capitalise, but you won't have those kind of extreme imbalances in the location of energy. And so, you know, I think you know, other things being equal, that would that would significantly reduce the potential for geopolitical geopolitical yeah. tensions. Um, so, so I think this, you know, there's so many uh, to sort of use an economist word externalities that we don't even think about as externalities yeah. associated with the fossil energy system um, and we don't think about them as externalities because they're, they're hard to measure and quantify let alone monetize but they're there they're there in the um, the, the costs of uh, the, you know the kind of military and security costs associated with the import and export of um, of oil um, and uh, sort of military adventurism associated with oil they're there in the kind of costs of having a political economy dominated by large um, state-owned and multinational uh, private um, oil companies so you know we, we tend to sort of forget about yeah. those but in a world which is much more decentralized renewable energy um, we will kind of avoid those sort yeah. of costs in inverted commas which are sort of huge social and political costs well you've explained that very well and i think if we're moving towards that we can see how desirable it would mm. be to move towards energy sovereignty self-sufficiency even, yeah. and also people are talking about food sovereignty and security so to help the world along there in the time frame you know the urgent time mm. frame of climate change Naomi Klein's talking about a Marshall plan for the earth which is a sort of poetic way I think of saying let's move mm. our expertise transfer our materials to the countries that are pl- blundering through the old 19th century pattern of, mm. of, of uh, development let's help them leapfrog that yes. and uh, what, what would you say about that um, how to do that well I think the, the, the best sort of model here really is this is where there is a real leadership role for you know, the richer the richer countries and countries like Australia in the past that leadership role has been cast in, in, in the language of burden sharing back when we thought that yeah. climate change was just all about costs and burdens and so the developed countries had to take more of a burden and you know have this language of common but differentiated responsibility which was about burdens. But increasingly, as we kind of come to understand the economic costs and benefits and the likely net benefits domestically from taking action, that sort of, that, that language of burden sharing and, and the idea of leadership in taking on burdens doesn't make so much sense. Um, but what does make sense is that, you know, I think that the, the developed countries are always going to be at the forefront of, uh, of innovation in new technologies, particularly in the upstream part of innovation, the research and development of, of new technologies. Um, and they're probably going to be at the forefront of deploying a lot of the technologies and and of um, kind of changing their fiscal systems appropriately and having the right, you know, um, kind of service sectors and, and so on. So you, you would want your, your developed countries to kind of be hubs of decarbonisation. Yeah. And and there's an enormous amount of learning and innovation in, in the wider sense, not just technologies, but social innovation and policy innovation that's going to go on. Mm. And so if you kind of have developed countries at the leading edge of that with developing countries following closely behind, recognising that it's also in their interest, Mm. then I think you can have um, much greater, you know, to the more advanced ones, sort of export of that uh, technology and know-how, but to the the less developed ones, you know, I think kind of sharing in a more more altruistic sense of that that knowledge and Mm. and potentially of those those technologies as well. And I think that there is a kind of, if there's a moral obligation, it's more on that. It's more, you know, that that we're going to have these benefits um, by doing 
doing it first. Um, we might share some of the upfront front costs a bit more by going first. Um, and we will kind of make the technologies and make them cheaper and then help um, the least developed countries, you know, utilise and adopt yeah. those those systems and technologies and, and processes. Okay. Well, it's very refreshing to hear all your ideas. And um, you've just come back from London. Um, we had a speaker here on the radio, Lord John Deben, who's the UK Climate Change Committee head. Yep. And he criticised Australia for its low targets and he said conservatives like Angela Merkel and David Cameron are leading in the effort so why if we're having conservative leadership here can't we also see the light about 100% renewables being Mm. a very good goal even for conservatives or especially for conservatives and I think there are conservatives in the ALP as well you know there's people holding back and when you come here we we live in a culture here of of timidity and you know we're holding back we're putting blockages in the way Mm. of business you know renewable energy business I don't know how many wind farm people I've spoken to who are absolutely frustrated by the blockages planning ministers who've put in their way so it's a cultural problem what would you say to conservatives here who are in in ALP or in the coalition or just in the community how can we reposition ourselves maybe at Paris or a bit later in the next five years to become climate leaders Mm. yeah that's a great question and I find myself often reflecting on the differences between Australia and the UK and I think I sort of think about it this way in the UK decarbonising the UK economy is much harder technically and economically harder yet they're they're, they're trying much harder uh, and going a lot further in Australia it would be technically and economically much easier if we put our mind to it and did you know we've got world's best renewable energy resources and all sorts of other advantages Um, but the politics is worse and so we're going slower so it's this odd kind of uh, odd situation there are a few reasons for that I think having to do with our sort of uh, fossil fuel based and energy intensive based political economy um, I think but in terms of appealing to to conservatives I mean I think there there are different messages for different types of I mean conservatives doesn't quite do it I mean there's sort of there's even within the, the say the liberal national coalition you've got kind of conservatives and then you've got sort of smaller smaller liberals and I think um for, for certainly for the small L liberals like the Malcolm Turnbulls of the world, I think this this narrative of innovation and um, and kind of new source new potential sources of of growth um, innovation kind of uh, I think the idea of a decentralised renewable renewable energy should be, appeal to um, to liberals rather than these kind of clunky centralised fossil fuel based um, monopolies, a lot of which are state owned. So there's a lot I think in there that liberals can like, um, and some of the leading you know, liberal thinkers, sort of centre-right, small-l liberal thinkers on climate change. You see in, in the UK, I mean, people like Michael Liebrich, who founded uh, New Energy Finance, now Bloomberg, mm-hmm. New Energy Finance, um, you know, writes a lot of very, very interesting stuff. And I don't always agree with his politics, but I think he's a f- classic example of how you can speak mm-hmm. about these issues mm-hmm. to a kind of liberal mm-hmm. um, audience. As for more traditional conservatives, I mean, I think they're kind of the ideas of, like, 
conserving nature for future generations and stewardship and custodianship of our natural environment um, are really important. Um, but, but the challenge there is that there will need to be some disruption. We'll need to disrupt certain ways of life, certain industries will, will decline. And so there the challenge is, I think, about how to manage transitions for local communities. Mm. Um, but there's, you know, we can do that if we, again, if we sort mm. of put our mind to it. Um, so I think there are, there are, particularly as we now see the economic opportunities mm. open up, there are, I think there's a, a, a wider kind of set of narratives and frames and messages mm. that we can engage different audiences on. You know, in, in my talk tonight, I'm going to be, I'm going to be hardly mentioning the word was climate change, not because I don't care about it, because I think um, the global context is largely shifting on the economics of domestic action, mm. whatever you think about climate change. And yeah. so I think that opens up enormous potential to engage the full political spectrum. Thank you very much. That's Fergus Green, London School of Economics, and uh, one of the co-authors of Lagarde to Leader, which I'm very fond of that book. Thank you, Fergus. <laughs> Thanks, Vivian. Our guest tonight is Caroline Lambert. She's the first councillor from the Climate and Environment Delegation of the European Union to Australia. And she's in Melbourne at the moment for a conference, but she's based in Canberra. So welcome, Caroline. Could you tell us how is the European Union giving long-term security for energy companies? Thank you. Good evening. Well, what we've done in the European Union is try to take a long-term approach to our economy in terms of making it low carbon. We have a target of limiting our emissions, reducing them by 80% by 2050, and to make sure that we bring our companies certainty and a long-term vision, we've created an emissions trading scheme that has rules that are in place until 2020, but we've also now proposed rules for 2030 so that companies know how much they will be able to emit and how they will be able to buy emissions allowances and be sure that the decisions that they take are in a safe environment because the distance and the operational goal won't change. Okay, there are a lot of countries now in the European Union and could you tell us how many countries and how you can get them all to agree? We can't even get two parties in Australia to agree on such things as giving security to the energy companies. It's been a real problem. It's created real stagnation here. Yes, we have 28 uh, member countries. We call them member states and it's not a piece of cake to have them all agree on strong climate policies. But contrary to what happens in Australia, in most European countries we have bipartisanship on climate policy. Uh, mainstream parties from the left and the right usually agree that it's an important challenge and that strong action needs to be taken. They agree on taking strong action. We do negotiate for a long time and make compromises, but in the end, we always find a, a way of making it work for every one of us. So a lot of people here are feeling rather disempowered about corporate influence in the dem democratic process. You know, people just feel the coal companies here, for example, just have lunch with the Premier and the planning approval is given the next day. But it sounds as if the EU has started to put in place measures to empower people who, like just on their electricity bills, empower people to feel they can do something to influence the situation. Could you tell us some details about that? 
There are very new technologies coming into the electricity sector that are changing the landscape for the consumer. Suddenly, as a consumer, you can produce electricity. Uh, you can get off the grid or you can decide to sell your electricity to the grid. That brings up a lot of opportunities, but also challenges. And we feel it's extremely important to empower uh, the energy consumer. So what we're trying to do is give the um, European consumer, who's, who normally only uses 10 minutes a year to think about his or her energy bills, uh, clear and transparent information so that um, the consumer can control its consumption, understand the latest offers on the market, and understand how to use the smart energy technologies best. Mm -hmm. To do that, we're looking at bills so that they're much more transparent and understandable, and so that you can compare what you consume with what other typical uh, households like you are consuming and compare offers. We also want to make sure that it's easier to switch between energy suppliers so that more com there are more competition on the market and better rate. We want to encourage self-generation and also make sure that you can uh, make it cost-effective to sell your energy, energy to the grid. And we want a strong role for the energy regulators to protect consumers. I think we could really do those things without um, too much trouble here. That's not very controversial to do that, to take, it's sort of like educational too, isn't it? Giving people the idea of what they can do. Yes, it's, it is education, communication and uh, trying to make people understand that it's not risky, it's lots of opportunities, so do it. In the short term frame we have to get emissions down. What do you think, Caroline, will accelerate the deployment to the global south of the sort of renewable energy um, to help them leap from the old fossil fuel path that we have taken? I've been recently in Timor and they need help with reforesting. You know, they have mangroves that would protect them against storms, but the mangroves are all being just destroyed and the forests that were there um, in the guerrilla warfare. They were all defoliated because of the, um, to you know, flush out the guerrillas. So they've not managed to reforest. They need a project. Can you tell me, in terms of that, deploying and transferring expertise and money to poorer countries, what are the problems and how should we fast forward that? The developed world has promised climate finance to the developing world to quite a high tune of uh, 100 billion US dollars a year by 2020. And actually the good news is that there was a report by the OECD just uh, three weeks ago showing that we're already at around 62 billion dollars a year. So the money is starting to flow. The problem is that projects on the ground are not always ready for people to invest in. So it's extremely important now for the developed world to invest in capacity building in these countries, to finalize the project, projects, mature them, so that final investments can be made in the sort of fields that you just mentioned, reforesting. And that's a strong also interest of the Australian government. And I think we can expect Australia to take a strong role in that respect in Asia-Pacific. I'm interested to know that you are the first uh, European Union councillor on climate and environment to Australia. Could you tell us about what your experience has been so far? It's been extremely positive. It's a very interesting year to do climate policy here in Australia because Paris is just at the end of the year and because climate is such a lively political issue in your country. I've always encountered uh, very um, motivated persons 
uh, to take action. It's been a fantastic experience so far. Some of it, um, I imagine it's accelerating. Renewable energy would be one big part of this uh, push. But what about the fact that we really have this huge problem of the coal that we can't export, that we won't be allowed to export? We won't. How do you deal with that? I mean, there's a French company, for example, in Hazelwood. Um, I saw the other day that there was going to be some contract. Could you tell us a bit about that? And It's a difficult question. Of course, fossil fuels won't disappear from one day to the next. So the road towards decarbonisation will be long. So what is important and what the European Union promotes is developing a vision to limit our use of, of our fossil fuels in the path that is economically credible for everybody. If you don't want to limit your use of fossil fuels, then you have to develop technologies that are able to capture greenhouse gases. It's also something that should interest Australia. So it's all about talking to these companies and understanding how they can change their business models, how they see their business model already changing, and how they can plan for the future so that the jobs that these companies bring can be transitioned to some area that is uh, more sustainable in the long term. takes us from the heights of the EU conference in Melbourne University down to the streets in Sydney. For Melbourne listeners, the names of Bulga, Galilee Basin, Liverpool Plains, Malls Creek might not yet be household names. But I hope if you've been listening to this program over the year when we've been ramping up against coal and coal seam gas, you will have taken in those names there are people living in all of those places there are aboriginal sacred sites there there are people very worried about their water and their health and we are all worried about the climate impact of the coal if it is exported so today i'm taking you to a vigil outside a very tall building in a windswept part of sydney uh, where they uh, AYCC were having a vigil in commemoration of two years since the Typhoon Haiyan was in the Philippines and it swept away the lives of 6,000 people plus a lot of homes and a lot of people are still displaced so it was a decent thing to do to have a vigil in memory of those people at the foot of the company Whitehaven Coal, one of the exporters of coal which we connect up with climate disruption people say we've always had typhoons but these typhoons that we're having are sort of one in a hundred year one in a thousand year they're all intensified and the connecting link is the exported coal so that was why the vigil was outside Whitehaven Coal. Then I went to another um, public uh, public rally outside the Supreme Court where the people of Bolga had had a win a few months, or few, about a year ago. We did a program about it. They won in the Land and Environment Court and they won in the Supreme Court, but still the New South Wales government managed to change the law so that the planning approval would go ahead. And the company there is Rio Tinto, and it, at the moment we're on the brink of finding out whether it will go ahead or not. It seems to have the approval of the New South Wales government. The upshot of all of this is please take action. Please ring up the New South Wales government, uh, ring up Whitehaven Coal, ring up any of the people that you hear about on this program or send them an email and tell them you've heard about it on the radio and you are not happy that our 
um, taxpayer mon- funds should be subsidising this fossil fuel industry and the climate change and climate disruption that it fuels. So just listen to these two very short um, items with many speakers uh, telling us about the, the fight to stop coal. Um, I'm in Sydney here on a blustery afternoon and I've met Grace from the AYCC group and we're standing outside a massive tall building but apparently Whitehaven Coal has an office in there and I'd like to ask you Grace, why are you here? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm here because, and like along with, how many do we have today? Like 20 other people. Um, just, yeah, um, just making a point and showing the, and standing in solidarity basically um, with all, like the 11 million people in uh, the Philippines who were affected by Typhoon Haiyan uh, two years ago today. Um, and yeah, basically just really pointing out that like the problem starts here. Uh, like we are still like companies here in Australia, like Whitehaven Coal, are still mining, exporting, and burning coal, exacerbating the climate issue. Um, and like at the at the sort of expense of all these people in these countries who have done the least to cause climate change, but are like being affected the most. Um, and yeah, so we just wanted to sort of stand here today in solidarity with the twenty thousand pe- yeah twenty thousand people who are much in the Philippines um, in the streets of Manila right now um, to just yeah, stand in solidarity with them and say yeah we're here and we're sort of trying to make change here in Australia and just like asking these really big mining companies and coal companies like Whitehaven um, to be accountable and yeah. Yes I agree with the accountability. Tell us a little bit about what the people who would be rallying in uh, Philippines would be remembering two years ago because it's the anniversary. What was the impact on them? Yeah, so um, 6,000 people lost their lives um, in the typhoon. It was one of the biggest tropical cyclones ever. Um, and, yeah, they've, as they've sort of said, like, um, I haven't got the in front of me, but, yeah, I think one of the lead negotiators um, in, like, the climate talks from the Philippines basically just said, this climate madness has to stop. Um, and they are. They're connecting the dots. They know what is causing this. They know that it's climate change. And they know that they're not, like, they're not really the problem. It's countries like ours. Um, who are like really well off and well equipped to start transitioning over to renewable energy but we're just not we continue to export coal um, and we continue to burn it as well we're one of the highest emitters per capita in the world um, and yeah it's just it's obviously it's just not fair um, and yeah that's what we're sort of just trying to highlight today um, because they know it in the Philippines as well um, but there's like nothing they can do it's like here in Australia that we have to be doing something um, and just yeah basically like this isn't just an environmental issue it's a it's a really human issue it's a justice issue well this is a vigil outside the offices of Whitehaven Coal are you actually contacting Whitehaven Coal to make the point to them no um I'm not actually sure um I mean I'm sure there are people in contact with them I'm sure 350 maybe does things around that um but and I mean like there's always sort of actions there's an action with um frontline action on coal outside their AGM the other day and I mean yeah board members are like walking into there then so I I guess I'd call that direct um getting directly in contact with them um but yes as far as I know like the AYCC doesn't do stuff like that. Okay well listeners that's something for you to do you can write a very polite letter to Whitehaven Coal and say you heard about the vigil on Radio 3CR. Thank you very much Grace. Um, thank you. <laughs> the Greens join with you uh, saying that we must save Volga. We must save Volga. It is up to Mike Baird to intervene right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To save Volga. 
He has to back up his visit with legislation. Words aren't good enough. Posturing isn't good enough. Now's the time for the state government to act. We've got to save Bulga. We have to recognise that coal is over. There is no economic case for this mine. There are jobs being slashed from the Hunter Valley everywhere. Rio Tinto are about to walk away. The age of coal is over. My word. Another environment, another precious ecological community, another village with all its heritage and tradition sacrificed at the altar of coal. We recognise, the Greens recognise, we all, all reasonable people recognise that the planning system is broken. We, we have an original approval that says it will save the Walkworth Sands and protect Bulga with a buffer zone. We have a proposal, a development proposal after development proposal that is fought and won in the courts and yet the, the, the developments just keep coming back and coming back and a Department of Planning, no matter what, recommending approval and it's an absolute disgrace. Shame! 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 When will Mike Baird and the government put the community, the environment and our climate before the profits of multinational mining corporations that are about to walk out the door. And it's not so hard. Mike Baird rushed legislation through the parliament just last week about mining access. After years and years of debate and discussion, in a matter of four hours, they rushed special legislation through which enabled mining companies invariably to gain access to your land, to community land for exploration. In the dead of night, they rushed legislation through. Well, they could rush legislation through and the Greens would support them, reasonable people would support them to save Bulga, to stop this and to put the community first. So the Greens, I will keep fighting for Bulga, we'll keep fighting for all those communities, be it in the Hunter Valley, the Liverpool Plains, the Southern Highlands, the Illawarra, who've had enough of coal. We want to move yes. on and yes. Yes. renewable yes. energy. We'll keep fighting for you. On your mate. Yes. When we moved to the Hunter Valley some years ago from Sydney, we were of the view that all those voids would be backfilled and it will be a lovely playing ground again. Well, it is not. Those voids will remain. Rio Tinto said when suggested by the PAC that they should backfill the void, they said it's too expensive. So, the Department of Planning says, OK, well, you don't have to do it. Now, where is the guts of this planning department? You have an overseas company that comes in here, wrecks your countryside, digs massive great holes, makes billions of dollars in profit from our coal, because they don't own it, and then walks away at the end and says, fellas, the hole is your problem, we've got our profits, we're away. And that's what Rio Tinto will be doing at the end of this year. And don't forget that in this last two years, this government has worked relentlessly with Rio Tinto and the Minerals Council to get this approval through. Well, Mike Baird tells us that the PAC will make the decision that it is not up to him to intervene. But Mike Baird, Mike Baird, Mike Baird, Mike Baird, Mike Baird forgets to tell you that 
he and his government have changed the rules over this last few years, so it makes the approval of this mine almost inevitable. So, that this PAC that will be making the decision over the next two or three weeks is at arm's length from the government. No, Everything the PAC is approving has the cooperation and the support of the state government against the interests of the community. Yes. So, again, thank you for coming and keep up the fight. We've been going now for nearly six years and we intend to keep going until this mine is shut down Stopping the Warkworth expansion is of course about justice for Bulga, but is also about climate justice. In 2015, as much of the developed and developing world is turning the corner on coal, and as we see ever more impacts from climate change enhanced natural disasters, Australia still is wedded to this dirty resource. Unreal. And still we see new proposals for coal mines and expansions right across this country. Though coal is good for humanity, Abbott is gone. Yeah! It is clear that the political addiction to coal is still here and it runs very deep indeed. Same shit, different shovel! Are you going to be doing the speech? Uh, and this addiction, this addiction to coal protects the interests of some of the world's biggest companies and forgets the communities that are on the front line of climate impacts and the people that have done the least but are feeling the most of those impacts as the planet warms and as uh, we see more and more climate-enhanced natural disasters. We're seeing this from the Pacific, from our Pacific neighbours. We're seeing it in regional Australia and we're seeing it in ecosystems everywhere, as Daisy mentioned. I'm here today uh, to raise my voice in support of those who can't be here, the animals and the trees and the wildlife uh, of the Volga region. Rio Tinto's mine will destroy 600 hectares of bushland around, uh, around Volga. As well as the impacts that this mine will have on our changing climate, the impacts on our wildlife are hard to overstate. As George has already mentioned, this mine will destroy some habitats which are found nowhere else on Earth. It is simply not fair for the Mike Baird government, for Rob Stokes, for Anthony Roberts, to be making these decisions which not just affect our livelihoods as a state, our ability to go and see incredible uh, natural habitats and wildlife, they will change this state forever. Yeah. If we lose places like the Walkworth Sands Woodland, if this mine goes ahead, we will not get these areas back. Yeah. That's not acceptable to me, and I can see by the heads nodding today, that's not acceptable to you either. No way. No way. I'm outside the Supreme Court, and I've met Laurel Taggart, who is uh, from the Bulga area. And I'd just like, Laurel, could you... We did a program on this before about the Aboriginal import, importance of this area. Could you just tell us about it and what you know about that? I only know what my husband has said and everything, but he is so passionate about wanting to save Woodlands, Saddleback Ridge and everything in that area, which Rayo Tinto is going to destroy. And we just hope and pray that we can, with Bulga, we can save it to help Bulga and to help the Aboriginal heritage and culture. Is this that land that they were wanting to offset somewhere else? I'm not sure. I can't. I, I would not know. So it's, it's just land. It just looks like it's bushland. Yeah, but what, yeah, what do Aboriginal people see when they go there? I mean, it just looks like bushland to Rio Tinto. Yeah, I know, but that's their pathway. There's a pathway through there which matches up with um, the caves at Milbradale. 
and also out the other way, going towards us out that way. Yeah, it's a pathway. And if that's destroyed, then it's broken, isn't it? Yes. There's nothing else there. So. I went to the pack hearing and apparently they were just collecting Aboriginal artefacts and putting them in a tin shed. And um, the people I spoke to said, that's not what it's about. So it's a pathway. I know. We have, they pick up, you know, certain artefacts, I suppose, but we don't see them. They take them away and, as you said, put them in a shed and that's where they stay. We don't see them anymore. So, you know, it's really heartbreaking to see what is going to happen there. Mm. Okay, well, we're at the Supreme Court here today, not in the court, but outside. So um, uh, how do you feel things are going? It seems to be like really the end point at the moment now, a decision. What, what are you hoping for? Well, we're hoping for it to be changed, that they do not mine. Uh, walk with sands and saddlebrake and closer to Bulga, which is going to destroy Bulga town. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We've got the spokesperson here for the Bulga Milbradale Society, John Cray. John, tell us in a nutshell, where to from here? We're asking Mike Baird to set aside land that the government agreed to set aside back in 2003 and make this land non-accessible for mining. And this would save Bulga, it would save the Walkworth Sands Woodlands and it would give a proper and balanced victory to the people of the Hunter Valley. Is that where the Aboriginal sacred areas are? Yes, they are. We have the... Uh, or oh, there's several Aboriginal sites that will be destroyed and there is the, the large gathering sites which the Aboriginals for 2,000 years have been gathering there and those sites will be demolished. Okay, so the audience, to you listeners in Melbourne, you might like to participate this. Bog seems a long way away to you, but it's really the centre of the universe to these people. And um, John Cray is asking us to perhaps contact Mike Baird, New South Wales Government. Yes, because we need to apply pressure and we need to apply it quickly because this is in the final three or four weeks of the decision-making process, so we don't have much time left. And we must pressure Baird to step in and fly his colours and save our community. That was John Cray outside Supreme Court in Sydney. What are we going to do? Save Bulga! What are we going to do? Save Bulga! What are we going to do? Save Bulga! What are we going to do? And that last bit of hearty uh, support for Bulga. That's the Bulga versus Rio piece. And that's our show for tonight. We have to thank Fergus Green from LSE at the top of the show. Then we had Caroline Lambert. Lambert, I can't do the French accent as Vivian did from the EU. We have John Cray, John Creaser from 350.org, Daisy Barham from uh, the Australian Conservation Foundation, Jeremy Buckingham from the Greens, New South Wales, uh, brought to us all by our intrepid producer, Viv Langford.